This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of October 24th, 2022, here are some top stories. In northern Arizona, officials are working to clear overgrown tree lines that haven't been touched in generations. From our Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Michel Morisco reports on an expensive operation officials hope will save the region's biggest cities from disastrous fires and floods. A helicopter slinging a massive pile of cut trees winds its way across the slopes of Bill Williams Mountain. The mountain sits within the Kaibab National Forest and overlooks the small Arizona town of Williams. We're here what we call a landing. This is the area where they bring all of the material that is being processed. So you see the helicopter comes in, uh, releases the cables or the chokers, drops the trees there. David Tenney is Arizona's forestry and fire management director. The helicopter sweeps overhead free of its load and then heads back out for another run. So this is where they process all of it. It gets separated. The good logs go to be, uh, you know, they're merchanted and, and off to the mills that can use them. The smaller stuff gets chipped and goes to the biomass plants or the mulch plants or whatever, and they turn it into electric power or, or into mulch or something to treat the soil. So. Just about everything you see coming through here gets used in one way or another. It's a slow, tedious process. Each helicopter run takes about five minutes from pickup to drop off, and there are lots of trees to remove. This particular project is focused on a 280-acre swath of forest. Samantha Flores is a Kaibab National Forest project manager. It, it's challenging, right? It costs a lot of money, and so we have to be very particular about where do we want to spend these dollars. She says that from that perspective, this particular mountain is worth the cost. Bottom line, it's less expensive than battling a fire on Bill Williams Mountain slopes and then preparing the town of Williams for flooding. Is this a realistic strategy? I'm going to tell you it's, it's the only strategy for these slopes. There's no other way to get these trees down other than to fly them out and to get this material off the ground and fly it out. The ponderous clearing is intended to strip away wildfire's most expensive and intense moments. That's when soils burn. That's when, you know, we have completely denuded stands, right? That's when we're putting our firefighters' life at, at risk, right, is when we have those really hot, intense fires. That's what we're trying to avoid. Fire modeling is underway now on Flagstaff's San Francisco Peaks to do the same steep slope logging after three destructive fires since 2019 left much of the city under perpetual threat of flooding. Uh, Jay Smith, I'm the Forest Restoration Director for the Coquimbo County Flood Control District. The county's math on the cost of this operation is relatively simple. If we don't treat these acres, the $16,000 per acre could turn into a billion plus dollars of damage. Uh, downstream, you know, the cost-benefit ratio is there for us to spend these kinds of dollars on these acres. Right now, the county is footing a hefty $30 million for five years of this type of work, and the state another $1 million. The U.S. Forest Service is also paying in through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. For the town of Williams, the $30 million cost of restoring a healthy forest offsets a potential $700 million in damages. Lucinda Andreani is the county's flood control district administrator. She says the math proportions are far higher for Western Flagstaff. The cost to trim, $40 million. The resulting 
reduction in threat is over a billion. There, the Upper Rio de Flag watershed protects the town's economic engines, the tourism-dependent downtown, Northern Arizona University, and the densely populated real estate. Then it starts to put everybody's investment into perspective. She hopes to start trimming the San Francisco Peak's steep slopes by July, the start of the next fiscal year. Michelle Marisco, KJZZ News, reporting from Williams. In business news. Development is underway to turn a former landfill in South Phoenix into a food innovation center. As Christina Estes reports from our business desk, developers envision a regional hub to improve efficiency and reduce food waste. Tuesday's ceremonial groundbreaking south of the Rio Salado launches the first phase of development. A 20-acre public park in a year-round marketplace connecting Mexican food producers directly with Phoenix businesses and consumers. The project, called Arizona Fresh Agri-Food Innovation Center, is in Councilmember Carlos Garcia's district. This project not only is going to bring jobs, economic development, innovation, that's going to help the entire region, but it's also going to help do right by the wrongs that were done in this area. Future development phases on the 140-acre site will include education programs, along with research resources like test fields and a living lab to study farm-to-market supply chain issues. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. This English professor says schools should teach a difficult text, even amid culture wars. The conversation with the show's Lauren Gilger. Deborah Appleman is professor and chair of educational studies at Carleton College and taught high school English for nearly a decade before going into academia. I spoke with her more about this, beginning with the dilemma that teachers face. Oh, I absolutely do. Teaching has always been a challenging profession, and choosing the right texts for your students has always been something that teachers have carefully considered. But we seem to be in the middle of a cultural war, and what makes it particularly difficult for teachers is that there are challenges coming from both the right and the left side of the political spectrum, and it makes it difficult difficult for us to be able to, you know, maintain our own version of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. So we want to make sure that we give students some rich literary ground to discuss important things and also give them, you know, some wonderful books to read and to discuss together. But we also have to balance that with the social context in which we find ourselves, with students' own background, with parental objections, Mm -hmm. with books being removed from libraries kind of on a daily basis. And that just makes it all really, really complicated. Yeah, it's really complicated for teachers, especially we're sort of in the middle of it. You point out that, you know, some texts can be too much for the classroom. Maybe they're gratuitous, maybe they're vulgar in ways that are unnecessary. But you also talk about in this piece how literature can be a really important way to open students' minds to ideology. You say it it can help them learn to resist ideology. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So every book that's read is an author reflecting on his or her own world as 
they see it. And within that world are embedded certain social values. What's important for us to do is to not necessarily reject the book out of hand because those social values don't mesh with our 21st century sensibilities, but to ask ourselves the question of what was the world in which the author was writing? Mm -hmm. How is it reflected? How have things changed? And what can we do to both read the portrayal that they give us and then resist it if necessary? by removing particular texts from the classroom that doesn't afford students the opportunity to confront worlds and beliefs that are different from their own. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons why I think we don't want to take an author at his or her word. We don't want to say, you know, this is the way it is. We want to say, this is how the author perceived it. Do you buy it? How do you feel about it? What questions would you ask? Where do we need to resist things? Well, and so much of, of especially literature historically and the kind of literature I remember reading in high school, right, is based in the society in which it was written. So, you know, it might be, it might include racist characters. It might include, you know, sexist characters. I mean, things like this that are not acceptable today, but you're saying it's important to still learn those things and take them in the worlds in which they were created. Exactly, Lauren. I call what you were just talking about, which is such an important point. You know, we make the mistake of what I call presentism. By presentism, I mean that we take our 21st century values, moral compass, feelings, sensibilities, and we superimpose them onto the past. So we can't expect Shakespeare, you know, to treat women the way women should be treated, right? Mm -hmm. He's portraying things in particular kind of, of ways. That's true even for 17th, 18th, 19th, and some 20th century texts as well. Mm -hmm. So we need to understand the world in which the authors were operating, what were the mores and values then, and the purpose is not to preserve them or to defend them, but to understand them, to experience them, and then in some ways for us to talk about how much has changed, how far we've gone, how much still needs to change, and how far we still have to go. Right, right. So you give in this piece some recommendations to educators about maybe ways in which they can do this in a, in a, in a better way to teach these kinds of difficult texts. Let's talk about some of those. What do you mean, first of all, by what's the difference between teaching the controversy versus teaching the conflict as you outline it? Right. So teaching the controversy means actually letting kids know that this is something that we're undertaking that is fraught with trouble. So for example, if one wants to teach a book that has the N-word in it, whether it's by written by James Baldwin, an African-American writer, or Mark Twain, or any other kind of text that has that word in it, Instead of saying we are absolutely not going to read this book because of the terrible offensive nature of this word Mm -hmm. to say this book has this word in it. Let's talk about why it's so problematic, so troublesome and so hurtful. So we have a lot of choices here as a community of learners. We can read the book and say the N word. We can 
not read the book at all. We can discuss and trouble why that word is used in the book because of some historical context and what the author's goal was in using the word. For example, James Baldwin knows that the word has a lot of power Mm -hmm. and he wants his readers, both black and white, to understand its power, to understand its hurt and to confront it. And I would say very quickly that the word is differently experienced when it's used by BIPOC authors or white authors. Mm Do you worry that we are in a world now in which that kind of nuance is just not always possible? Absolutely. I worry that we're in a world now where no nuance is possible. Mm. I mean, everything is so bifurcated. Everything is so divisive. Everything is so black and white, so all or nothing, so right or wrong. And um, the theorist William Perry talked about that as kind of um, uh, intellectual dualism and that the job of educators is to teach relativism, to absolutely have young people learn that there are lots of different nuances and lots of different shades of ways of thinking about different things, especially controversial things. And if we do not teach the nuance, if we do not model it, we are going to have a world that is so binary, that is so oppositional in nature, where we can't really even talk with each other. That is Deborah Appleman, the Hollis L. Caswell Professor and Chair of Educational Studies at Carleton College, joining us to talk more about her piece in Lit Hub about teaching difficult texts and literature. Deborah, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for your perspective on this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. In Education News. Scores from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, have been released. As Bridget Dowd reports, it's the first time since before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Every two years, NAEP samples students from each state in fourth and eighth grades on math and reading. Based on the latest results, Arizona students are at or close to the national average in those subjects. Reading scores from 2019 to 2022 held steady, but Arizona students declined in math. That's in line with national trends, according to the Arizona Department of Education. A statement from the department says the scores largely align with recent data from statewide assessments and show small but noticeable gains from last year for most students, but they haven't fully rebounded to pre-pandemic levels. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Fronteras News. Neighboring Sonora has a conservative reputation, one that was on display during the years-long fight over a marriage equality measure. Also on display was the growing power of the state's LGBTQ movement, which ultimately emerged victorious last fall. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Murphy Woodhouse brings us a story on what they've won so far and what remains to achieve equality for all Sonorans. Just over a year ago, in front of Sonora State Congress, a large crowd was quietly waiting for updates from inside. With rainbow flags fluttering in the wind, shouts went up whenever there was a vote for the marriage equality measure being considered. And when it finally cleared the necessary threshold, the crowd erupted. 
Sonorans could now marry their same-sex partners without the additional barriers they had faced for years. But the legislative win didn't come easy and was the culmination of years of organizing and pressure from the growing LGBTQ movement in Sonora. Abraham Carreño is a part of a coalition of 12 or so LGBTQ advocacy groups with dozens of active members across the state. The marriage equality reform was one demand on the group's political agenda, which he says has the overarching goal of creating an equitable society. And that agenda is not just an idle wish list. During the 2021 electoral campaign, four gubernatorial candidates, including the current governor, Alfonso Terrazzo, signed on to it, as did dozens of mayoral and state congressional candidates, seven of whom were elected to the new legislature that approved the marriage reform within weeks of starting work. In the prior legislature, reforms were approved allowing transgender Sonorans to easily correct their birth certificates and increasing punishments for murder when the victim is targeted for their gender expression or sexual orientation. Cada vez eh, el gobierno, eh, partidos políticos o marcas voltean uh, a ver más. Carreño says that governments, uh, political parties, even brands are turning their attention to the LGBT community more and more. He points to recent federal data showing more Mexicans are identifying as members, reflecting a growing societal acceptance, especially among younger people. Two thirds of those who identify as LGBT are between the ages of 15 and 29. La lucha por nuestros derechos y por la equidad existe desde hace décadas. The last several years are outliers in the community's decades of struggle in Sonora and across the country, Carreño says. He celebrates the recent advances, though when seen as part of the longer history, progress has been slow and hard fought, and many demands remain unmet. In June, Hermosillo's Pride March, the largest to date, organizers say, had a rallying cry for the thousands of attendees. Nada que curar, a simple declaration that being gay or trans is not something that can or should be cured. It was a reference to the coalition's next legislative target, a ban on so-called conversion therapies, a number of practices intended to change sexual orientation or gender identity that the United Nations says can amount to torture. Esta iniciativa surge desde la sociedad civil. Less than a week later, a bill to do just that was introduced by Deputy Rosa Elena Trujillo, who cited the loud demands from Pride marchers. In a recent national survey, around 10% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual Mexicans said their parents forced them to see professionals to alter their orientations, and a slightly higher proportion of trans Mexicans experienced similar efforts regarding their gender identity. Bienvenidas, bienvenidos, y bienvenides. In late September, coalition members, legislators, other officials, and members of the public gathered at the state congress for a forum on the measure. Near the start, the Dim for a viewing of the short film Parasara, a jarring, compelling story about two young women's secret romance. After confessing its existence to a priest, one of the women ends the relationship and undergoes electroshock therapy. Erika Salinas, the director, was at the forum and says the film was inspired by her personal experiences coming of age in Sonora. No one can erase what happened to her 20 years ago, she tells the rapt audience. No one can give that lost time back. But she tells the state deputies present that it's in their hands to make sure no more Sonorans suffer as she did. Muchas gracias.
Deputy Trujillo, the measure's sponsor, says this legislature is different from past bodies, where such reforms have floundered. She thinks it's likely that it will be passed before the current session ends in December. But without the movement behind it, she says it's impossible to imagine the conversion therapy ban even being introduced. Salinas, the film director, is also hopeful about the reform's passage and says the fight for it has been a part of her recovery from the trauma she endured. She says the movement today owes a great debt to past generations of activists who took extraordinary risks to fight for their rights. And that they have no intention of giving up the power they've won. Murphy Woodhouse, KJZZ News, Hermosillo. And finally, in science news. Arizona ranks ninth among states with the most widespread shortages of health professionals. And the Health Resources and Services Administration has labeled the state a medically underserved region. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports on an NAU survey that dives more deeply into the state's unmet needs. NAU calls it a tale of two Arizonas, Maricopa County, where 21% of respondents say an increased focus on healthcare access is needed, and everywhere else, where that number nearly doubles. NAU President Jose Luis Cruz Rivera says the survey also underlines the need for affordable education that matches a region's specific needs. That if a particular region has a need for more physical therapists, physical therapy programs be accessible to that population. The university's 20 sites statewide will focus on needs identified by the survey. They include programs to educate nurses, physical and occupational therapists, physician assistants, dental hygienists, and mental health practitioners. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation, and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.